0: I'll be reading Philippians chapter, chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent... for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have blessed is the reading of God's holy infallible word to our hearts and souls Father may we have ears to hear May we hear the beauty, the glory of Christ that awaits all who believe. May we hear it in these sobering words of your Apostle Paul. We thank you for the presence of the Spirit here that you would continue to work in our hearts in our desires and our affections that in the days and weeks and years to come we will by your grace be shown forth now and redound through eternity as vessels of mercy through whom the glory of Christ shows itself. So work in us. To the glory of His name. Amen. Last week we saw that the Philippians have been experiencing persecution, opposition because of their stance as a Christian for their faith, In Christ. And Paul's response was not, oh, so sorry about that. His response was, don't be frightened by the opposition. And by that he means, don't let the opposition move you away from Christ or to fear what might happen to you temporally. Don't be frightened. And we can say, that's easy for you to say, Paul. And he would say, no, it's not easy. But it's rooted in something that is profoundly deep and otherworldly. Paul tells them that it's not just what is happening to you, but why it's happening and God's role in it. And it's meant to encourage them, to strengthen them and us. Verse 28, And don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear Sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. In other words, trust your heavenly Father. He's in control. Go on testifying for Christ. Go on preaching. Go on living. Go on worshiping. Go on standing for the truth. And then to make it crystal clear, Paul goes on to argue for that. In verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. To suffer on behalf of Christ is Granted, given, as a gift to them. It's not the way we normally talk about suffering, but that's what Paul says. Christians, whether being shamed, ridiculed, whether it's jail time job loss pain any kind of opposition that you experience because of Christ that whole experience of suffering is a gift God has given to you and it shouldn't be surprising because Jesus himself said in mark 8:34 if anyone Would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now don't sanitize the words. Because in its original context, that language was meant to be as shocking as it sounds. To first century ears, that means take up that disgusting, ugly, heavy cross beam upon your shoulder and stumble towards the place of crucifixion where you will be executed slowly and in shame to death and throughout the centuries and today many many take up that cross And it means they endure persecution for Jesus' sake. And that's what the Philippians in this context were called to face. Look at verse 30. You have been engaged in the same conflict that you saw I, Paul, had and now hear that I still have. And in the early Jerusalem church, remember when the apostles were arrested by the system, the religious government, and were beaten for it. Acts 5.41 says this. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So the question is, why does God, who calls us to faith in his Son, why does he allow that? Actually, probably the better question is, why does God appoint suffering? The answer, because these things are part of his plan for his people. 700 years before Jesus was born, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah these words. It was the will of Yahweh, of God, to crush his son Jesus, to kill him. And the early church prayed this way in Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They killed Jesus. It's absolutely true. Satan had a part. Herod, Pilate, the Sanhedrin. Absolutely true that they were the immediate cause of the suffering. But they can do nothing. Without God's permission. As Job chapter 1 and 2 make crystal clear. And Paul now in our passage describes suffering as a gift from God. He gives it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. It's been granted or it's been given to you. And it is the right word. He calls suffering a gift just like faith is a gift. Paul was told, remember, by Jesus himself at his conversion, how much you must suffer for my name's sake. And now as Paul writes to the Philippian church, what he shows us is that the gift that was given to him as part of his ministry, as part of his apostleship, is not viewed by Paul, as limited to apostles. Suffering is granted to the Philippian believers. The whole church. Twice the apostle Peter speaks about Suffering being God's will. 1 Peter 3.17, he writes, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, rather than doing evil. What he means is, if you suffer for doing good, then it was God's will. In 1 Peter 4, 19, he writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The suffering of the Philippian church is not something that was unforeseen by the Lord. He saw it clearly. He embraced it for himself in order to die for our salvation. And then he sent his disciples into the same experiences. Behold, he told them, I am sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. And I will send them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and persecute. And so Paul knew something. He knew something when he said in Acts chapter 14 to the churches through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12 to all the churches throughout all the provinces Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not strange. It's his point. It is to be expected. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3:12: Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be. Persecuted. That starts with words and it can end with death. Starts with shame, could end in torture. That's what persecution is. And Paul writes to the new church in Thessalonica these words in 1 Thessalonians 3 2 to 4. And think about how, how this was embedded in Paul's teaching in his evangelism, in his mission work, his pastoral work, because they already knew this. We sent Timothy to you to establish you and to exhort you in your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we're destined for this. Because when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass. So what I want to do then with the rest of our time is give a few biblical answers to why. Why does God ordain, appoint, gift, suffering to His children? He's sovereign. He could throw Satan in the pit right now and end it. He can end all opposition to the gospel in this world. He can end all suffering, all sickness, all disease today. But he hasn't. God wills that the Christian advance and grow in Jesus through the storms of life. And so here are reasons for why it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only that you believe in Him, but also that you suffer on His behalf. So first, because suffering deepens faith, deepens holiness. Hebrews 12. Starting with verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastens every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated well, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But God our Father disciplines us for our good, In order that we may share his holiness. So the Hebrew writer puts all of the pain and all of the suffering of his people under the banner of God's caring, loving, molding discipline. And his purpose is to develop our faith. In holiness. Paul writes this way in 2 Corinthians 1 8 to 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now listen to him. For we were so Utterly burdened beyond our strength. That we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Immediate suffering he must be talking about is certainly at the hands of evil people, Satan. But he says now there was a purpose, and it is a purpose clause. This was in order that we not rely on ourselves, but turn and rely on God. And that is not Satan's purpose. And it's not any human agency's purpose for Paul. But through God's sovereign hand, it was his purpose. That's how Paul teaches. God knocked the props of life out from under him so that he came to the place where there was no longer a choice but to just fall upon God and receive the hope promise of the gospel of the resurrection of the dead one day. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5 verse 3 to 5 these strange words strange to a non-Christian. We rejoice in suffering. I, I don't. Give me the Advil. 800 milligrams as fast as you can. And I think Paul would too. Just read on and see his point. He doesn't rejoice in suffering. For suffering's sake. We rejoice in sufferings because we know something. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope. The hope of the Gospel he's talking about does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering, he says, produces a radical hope by the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit, thus deepening character. Have you ever heard anyone say the really, really deep lessons of my life have come through times of ease and comfort? Not usually, huh? It's usually from brothers and sisters in Christ over the centuries have said stuff like, every significant advance in my life of maturity and growth and grasping the depths of God and of the gospel have come through hard experience. Samuel Rutherford was a pastor in the 1600s. In the 1660s, he was in jail because he refused to conform to Anglicanism. He was a Presbyterian Scottish pastor. And then he made this discovery about happiness. He wrote, If God had told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could possibly be in this world, and then had told me that he should begin by crippling me in all my limbs and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet, how is his wisdom Manifest even in this. For if you should see a man shut up in a small room, idolizing a set of lamps, 1600s, okay, so it's oil lamps with with fire. He's idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light. And you wish to make him truly happy? You would begin by blowing out all his lamps then throw open the shutters to let in the light of heaven. He's training and we're to pray that when our candles are blown out we don't curse the wind that did it. God is producing faith and holiness. That's the first reason. Second reason is that suffering makes your experience of glory in eternity increase. This is part of Paul's meaning in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17 to 18. For this light momentary affliction You just don't have time. You got to read what he wrote right before it about his experiences of suffering. And they were not light. But compared to eternity, they were momentary. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing something, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's affliction is preparing or creating or bringing about a weight of glory beyond all comparison. He is not merely saying that the hope of the gospel, that the hope of the inheritance in heaven enables him to endure suffering. That's true, and he does say that. But that's not merely what he's saying here. He's saying the suffering itself. His experience down here on earth has an effect on his eternity. On the weight of glory. There seems to be a clear connection with God's people who are called to faith in Jesus Christ. Between their experiences, their works or lack of them. And between their suffering endured down here. And the degree of glory enjoyed in eternity. And clearly that glory is Paul's point. And again, because I'm going to show you where he says this again. It's embedded in his theology. When he says in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory. That is to be revealed to us. The weight of glory or the experience of God in His glory. It seems to be more or less dependent in part on the afflictions, the sufferings we have endured with patience. some of you know, but the biggest help I've ever gotten on that that question that we Christians always ask, okay, we're saved and forgiven and sin will be wiped away and how are there rewards in heaven? I mean, does that mean God gives me something other than God so that I can worship it in heaven and I got more than you? And it the person who's helped me the the most on this is Jonathan Edwards. So I'm going to read probably for a minute now, just slowly from a sermon that he wrote and preached in 1740. There are different degrees of happiness and glory in heaven. The glory of the saints above will be in some proportion to their degree of holiness and good works here. Christ will reward all according to their works. He that gained ten pounds was made ruler over ten cities, and he that gained five pounds over five cities. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 9, He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly, and he that soweth bountifully shall reap also Bountifully. And the Apostle Paul tells us that as one star differs from another star in glory, so also it shall be in the resurrection of the dead. Christ tells us that he who gives a cold cup of water unto a disciple in the name of a disciple shall in no wise lose his reward. But this could not be true if a person should have no greater reward for doing many good works than if he did but few, it will be no damp, again, not say the word for bummer, it will be no bummer to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that there are others advanced in glory above them. For all shall be perfectly Happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full. Though there are some vessels far larger than others. And there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven. But perfect love shall reign through the whole society. There will be a perfect harmony in that society. Those that are most happy will also be most holy. And all will be both perfectly holy and perfectly happy. But yet, there will be different degrees of both holiness and happiness according to the measure of one's capacity. Right. Now, the analogy that, that I use to say, okay, let me, re- what, what has Edward just said? He said this people are only saved by grace it has nothing to do with any works or anything that one has done period it is all upon Christ but down here in this life is being worked out in your resurrection and for eternity your capacity for enjoyment of the glory of God and so if you got a bag of balloons of many different sizes here's his point if you got one balloon we fill it blow it up to its capacity don't let any lack be there it's that big. And then you get another one and here's Paul's balloon and it's that big. But it's also filled to capacity. There, there's no lack. There's no like, uh, I still have emptiness in my balloon of capacity in heaven. No, you don't. Okay, That's the best I can do on that. Their capacity to enjoy His glory in the age to come is in part being developed down here, particularly through suffering, which is preparing an eternal weight of glory. Third, God uses the suffering of some to help others, to cause them To love Christ more, to be more bold, to awaken them out of their slumber of indifference. Paul's already said this in verse 14 of Philippians 1, remember? And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. God will use the suffering and the persecution of His devoted servants To make a sleeping church wake up, take risks for Christ, for the gospel. If you have never read David Brainerd's diary, which he wrote in the 1700s as he was a missionary way out in the west, western New Jersey. Single, slowly dying over years of tuberculosis, coughing up blood. Constantly discouraged in his mission work. And he wrote a diary. He died at age 29 in the 1740s. And he died in Jonathan Edwards' home. And after his death, Edwards took that diary and he published it. And that was about the time the new modern age of missions had, was beginning to Africa and India and Iran, et cetera, In the late 1700s and early 1800s and thousands and thousands of Christians left England and America. Many to go die easily of disease as they would go to these lands to reach people. And they all left with a Bible and with David Brainerd's. So one example is Henry Martin, missionary to India. He wrote this in his own journal. May 12, 1806. My soul was revived today through God's never-ceasing compassion so that I found the refreshing presence of God in secret duties. Especially was I most abundantly encouraged by reading David Brainerd's account of the difficulties attending a mission to the heathen. Oh, blessed be the memory of that beloved saint. No uninspired writer, me, non biblical writer, ever did me so much good. I felt most sweetly joyful to labor amongst the poor natives here, and my willingness was, I think, more divested of those romantic notions which have sometimes inflated me with false spirits or expectations. Read Brainerd. You will feel encouraged. You would think, it could be worse. And it was a gift. He was not walking around in his short 29 years thinking, what an impact I'm going to make. He felt day after day, why can't I make such an impact? He felt really cheated in his life because he was not allowed to be a pastor because of what happened at the university. and Here he was to the Indians. But God knows what he's doing. Like he did with Richard Vrombrand, who was just one example of so many thousands of Christians behind the Iron Curtain who suffered under communism because of their faith in Christ. But he wrote a book. And boy, the title was catchy, which I found in 1986 while I lived in Dallas, tortured for Christ, founded Voice of the Martyrs, and they tell stories and keep in touch constantly, day by day, even today, of those who are suffering and those who are being martyred. But you hear stories like this in Voice of the Martyrs. Quote, the execution of Wycliffe missionary Chet Bitterman by the Colombian guerrilla group M19 on March 6th, 1981, it unleashed an amazing zeal for the cause of Christ. Chet had been in captivity for seven weeks while his wife Brenda and little daughters Anna and Esther waited in Bogota. The demand of M19 was that Wycliffe, Bible translators, get out of Colombia. They shot him just before dawn, a single bullet to the chest. Police found his body in the bus where he died in a parking lot in the south of town. He was clean and shaven, his face relaxed. A gorilla banner wrapped his remains. In the year following Chet's death, Applications for overseas service with Whitcliffe Bible translators doubled. This trend was continued. They end it. It's not the kind of missionary mobilization that any of us would choose, but it is God's way. God uses the suffering of His people to embolden others. His people. Fourth, sufferings are the container that carries the gospel of Christ's sufferings. Listen to how Paul writes in First Thessalonians 1, verses 5 to 6. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God saved them. The Spirit convicted them. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus. And he explains what he means. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So the Thessalonians had imitated Paul by enduring much affliction with joy. And that's the kind of man that Paul proved to be among them. And so Paul's suffering was hand in glove going together Okay, the suffering and the word, the suffering and the preaching of the gospel, and together they were the means of God saving the Thessalonians. This is the kind of ministry Paul has in mind in chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians when he writes, verse 5, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, So, through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort also. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort in salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. The gospel of Christ's sufferings is preached by the church, often through their suffering and words. Gospel words and suffering. Paul was making Christ's sufferings real for the church. I think that at least in part, that must be what Paul meant in that stunning, often troubling statement in Colossians one twenty four. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Now, Jesus' afflictions and sufferings are not lacking in their atoning sufficiency for our sin. Clearly, he doesn't mean that. I don't know what else he could mean other than that Jesus' afflictions, they're lacking in some sense in this way. That they're not known, felt by people who were not at the cross. And so Paul carries the message of Christ's suffering. But also while suffering for the sake of Christ, he does it in such a way that what people see as he preaches Christ's sufferings, they see Christ's sufferings. In other words, the gospel comes through the Christian to the others. And if it's in a dire, dangerous, suffering circumstance, the gospel comes. Redounds all the more with, wow, he really thinks Christ and eternity and the resurrection is infinitely better than this world and all that's in it. It's what it does. Okay. John MacArthur, what in the world do you think is so great about worshiping Jesus with the community that you're willing to defy a judge and go ahead and have church anyway? Don't you understand? There are many out there who will think very badly about Jesus and about the church in this climate of fear. Don't you understand? You might go to jail and and the financial impact... The legal doo-doo you can get the church in. You'll have different responses, just like you had to Paul. But some of those responses would be, what is it? Okay, maybe I'll give it a here, finally. Is it really that great? What are you Christians about? treasure that the gospel really is the beauty and the joy that Jesus really is is made clearer through suffering Paul's words 2nd Corinthians 12 you know them Satan thorn in the flesh for Paul Satan is involved. He's sick of it. He prays, please take this out of my life. And Jesus answers, no. And he writes, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, because my power is made perfect in weakness. And therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. Because... When I am weak, then I am strong. He was strong in suffering because the power of Christ met him in ways that he wouldn't experience down here without it. Christ's power was Paul's only power when suffering would bring him to the end. Of his resources. and he Cast himself. By the Holy Spirit. Upon Christ. That was God's purpose. In the thorn. In the flesh. That he gave. To Paul. So the reason God wants. Such reliance is because. This kind of trust. Is what shows the supreme. Value. Beauty power of Christ to sustain his people. And so Paul writes to us. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ. But also to suffer for his sake. God ordains suffering because through and above everything all of these reasons it displays to the world just temporal short redemptive historical time we're in compared to all eternity it displays to the world and to yourselves that Christ really far more valuable than any and every thing down here. Hmm. Father, you're good. so many of your saints have suffered in ways that are unimaginable to us who sit in this room. Some of us may. Whether it's in the way we have to live through horrific persecution or mild persecution or whether it's the way we might slowly, painfully die. your son is our treasure and we thank you that we can rest our heads and go to sleep tonight without fear knowing that you're ever present and you provide the grace to Paul and to all your children in our time of Needing it. We thank you for that. To the glory of Jesus.